Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Mike Collins. On the local news roundup, the man who brought NFL football to Charlotte, Jerry Richardson, has died. We look back on his life. Guilty on all counts, a jury finds South Carolina attorney Alex Murdoch guilty of murdering his wife and son. Sentencing comes this morning. After more than two dozen so-called street takeovers in Uptown in February alone, CMPD says it wants to crack down on those involved. The CMS school board votes to ask the Mecklenburg County Commission to put a $3 billion bond referendum on November's ballot, and the system is also embroiled again in questions about how they handle reports of sexual assault. Here to talk about those stories and more is WFAE reporter David Borax. Daniel Shemtob is an investigative reporter with Axie Charlotte Hunter Signs reports for WSOC TV, and Eric Spanberg is managing editor of the Charlotte Business Journal. Welcome to you all. Thank you for being here. Good morning. So Thursday afternoon, yesterday afternoon, it was announced that former Panther owner Jerry Richardson had died. The man who brought NFL football to Charlotte passed away on Wednesday night at the age of 86. Eric, have they given any cause of death yet? They have not. Uh, as many people may know, Jerry Richardson had heart replacement surgery in 2009. Uh, so that naturally creates uh, complications, but he had lived uh, far longer than the expectations for a heart transplant recipient. So we just don't know. After applying for an NFL expansion franchise back in 1987, North Carolina native uh, Jerry Richardson was awarded that expansion team in 1993. Very pleased to announce that the Carolina Panthers have been unanimously selected as the... And this was Richardson's reaction. Um, I think the first thing I'd like to say that obviously this is a this is a dream come true for me and my partners who are many of us here tonight and especially uh, a dream come uh, true for uh, 10 million people back in the Carolinas that have gone to bat for us and worked every well been with us every step of the way and i'm very grateful for that and also if there's a i don't know where there's a camera that looks like it's from the carolinas but i want to talk to that camera if i could all of you people that bought all of those forty thousand plus psls you helped make history today pat yourself on the back when i get back to charlotte i'm gonna say thank you thank you thank you thank you so I'm going to rely on the old timers in the room here. Uh, l- let's look back on that moment in, in history in Charlotte. Can you describe the atmosphere in this city when that announcement came down, Eric? Well, I, I think what, uh, you know, that's 30 years ago, which is hard to believe uh, for those of us that are old timers. But Charlotte was just such a different place, uh, obviously a much smaller place. Uh, not a well-known place, particularly, even though the Hornets have been here for a few years. Uh, the continuing Charlottesville, Charleston, Charlotte, where are you? Uh, syndrome continued to play out much to the agony of uh, civic boosters. And the NFL, as the nation's most popular sport, even at that time, really put a stamp of approval on Charlotte. And uh, none of us in the city were shy about uh, touting the fact that NFL football was in Charlotte from that moment on. Yeah. You really can't uh, overstate just the, the way that the NFL franchise 
sucked all of the air in one direction in Charlotte. I worked at the Charlotte Observer at that time. And suddenly the Charlotte Observer building on South Tryon Street began to list towards the sports department. It was just an amazing time. <laughs> yes, indeed, because the sports section suddenly became truly important and shifted away our traditional attention to college, from, to, from college basketball to professional uh, sports. Uh, Richardson was, of course, a former NFL player. I think he played two seasons, mm-hmm. uh, and he made money, uh, took that money from those two seasons and put it into a fast food franchise that really blossomed under his leadership but he knew football and during his ownership the Panthers made the postseason eight times remember that vaguely Uh, including (laughs) two appearances in the Super Bowl and just before that first Super Bowl appearance Richardson spoke of the importance of the team to the NFL and to Charlotte it's an emotional investment the fans make and it's emotional investment I make the greatest reward for me is to know that the people around the country are seeing what a wonderful place we have here and what a wonderful stadium and what an organization we think represents NFL the way it should be represented. As you would imagine, uh, uh, former players and coaches and others uh, have been uh, pouring in accolades about Jerry Richardson, but how active was he in the operation of the team, the choosing of the coaches, the choosing of the players? You know, we never really knew exactly how – involved he was but certainly on the major decisions they were made by him or at least approved by him the thing that really stood out about Jerry Richardson Mike is that he was so influential and involved in league matters Uh, he famously had the NFL shield stamped at midfield uh, at Bank of America Stadium and he with uh, Dan Rooney, the Steelers owner at the time, selected Roger Goodell, who is the current NFL commissioner. So when you look uh, across the country at the wave of new stadiums and seat licenses and other business aspects, Jerry Richardson was very influential in how all those things came about. Yeah, his influence, uh, I think he didn't he run the organization for a while at the owner's level because I interviewed him once several years ago when he was still the owner of the team. And he said that he had that the next owner would be a very rich person or a conglomerate of rich people, but that he had taken steps to ensure that they could never move the team. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that might that may have changed now, yes. but back then that was what he had done. Uh, of course, he got the idea to even put his toe in the water when George Shin was awarded the Hornets franchise. And prior to the Panthers coming here, people don't remember this probably, but the the Hornets played at the old new Coliseum out there near Billy Graham Parkway, which is no longer there. They tore it down because it was five years old. Uh, They... uh, but when the, when the Panthers arrived after they played their first two seasons in Clemson, they put the stadium uptown and then the Hornets moved uptown. Talk about the impact of those two moves, which he 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 was the progenitor for. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there there was uh, during the run up to getting the team. And by the way, Charlotte was a huge underdog. There were multiple cities vying for an NFL team at that time. And the NFL had not expanded in 17 years when uh, the Panthers uh, became a franchise. And you had cities such as Baltimore and St. Louis that had had NFL histories that were uh, heavy favorites. And so it was an upset uh, win for Jerry Richardson. And I think the way he went about it uh, illustrates his 
philosophy, which is he courted the owners aggressively because the owners are the ones that make the decision. You have to have three quarters of the vote. Uh, he went out and personally visited those owners uh, rather than just finding them at league meetings, which a lot of people talked to me about yesterday. And then when they did settle on Uptown, and remember that was a stadium that was built with seat licenses, not public money or not much public money, I guess is the more accurate way to put it. Right. Uh, it really did a lot. Uh, I think as David was saying, you know, the sports department, it, the observer listed toward the sports department. Well, Uptown started to list toward the NFL stadium. And you see all of the things, particularly in recent years, as they've added more and more events under David Tepper of the influence of how that stadium has helped energize Uptown. Of course, he didn't do this all on his own. He got some help. And a lot of that help came from Hugh McCall, who helped Jerry Richardson get the financing for his fast food empire along the way. Uh, and then as head of uh, Nations Bank, which was the predecessor to Bank of America, Jerry Richardson came to him with this idea of buying an NFL team. And Hugh McCall said, well, he thought he was delusional, but he was going to humor him because he's always paid, he's always paid back the loans. <laughs> <laughs> so clearly uh, he, he didn't do this alone, but he got a lot of help. Well, and Mike, I think the other thing that's important about when you when you get into the aspect of Hugh McCall and the financing and the other banks uh, that were in Charlotte, I guess it was First Union at the time. I'm trying right. to remember the nomenclature of our various banks over the years. One of the smartest things that Jerry Richardson did was he brought in people uh, like Johnny Harris, uh, like the Belk family, like Erskine Bowles, all as investors part owners in the team. And just as important as the money was the community influence and the way that having those people involved guaranteed that the rest of the city was going to buy in. And that's exactly what they did. That stadium was sold out for years because of that influence and those seat licenses that required people to buy tickets on an ongoing basis. So Jerry Richardson got the franchise in 93. They played their first game in 95. Uh, he had as we as we heard in that cut, he talked about uh, the the good things about his team representing the NFL the way it should be represented and the city the way it should be present, represented. But it those words came back to haunt him because in I think it was 2018 he sold the team to David Tepper and not because he wanted to. Talk about what led to that sale. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, go ahead, Danielle. No, ahead. it was just it was about I think it was the end of 2017. There was a Sports Illustrated article that basically detailed allegations of racial and sexual misconduct in the workplace. Um, there were, you know, monetary settlements uh, for former Panthers employees over inappropriate workplace conduct. So ultimately, he ended up selling the team in 2018. And the one of the things that was striking about that is he issued a, a statement in December of 2017 after that Sports Illustrated article came out saying that he would sell the team. And then I think he issued maybe one or two more statements as the sale process went through. But we never heard from Jerry Richardson publicly again. He, he never, uh, you know, did a TV interview or print interview or anything else. Once he left, he was out of the building and was really never heard from again, other than some philanthropic work that would be uh, announced by a statement. But we, we never saw or heard from him again. He paid $206 million for the rights to get this expansion franchise. He sold it to David Tepper for $2.275 billion. Now, there's a hefty investment. That's a good one. Uh, Buy low, sell high, Mike. That's right. And I should learn that. And uh, that was a record price for a team at the time. Uh, current Panthers owner David Tepper issued this statement yesterday. He says, quote, Jerry Richardson's contributions to professional football in the Carolinas 
are historic. With the arrival of the Panthers in 1995, he changed the landscape of sports in the region and gave the NFL fans here a team to call their own. He was incredibly gracious to me when I purchased the team, and for that, I am thankful. And then he extended his condolences to the family. I think, Hunter, you spoke with both Hugh McCall and, uh, and a former chairman of the Bank of America and uh, former mayor and uh, uh, Governor Pat McCrory about uh, Mr. Richardson yesterday. Yeah, I did. One of the things that um, former mayor and Governor McCrory had told me was that he was very tough to negotiate with, but he had a very generous heart. And there were multiple conversations, both at the mayoral level and the um, gubernatorial level um, in which he had to deal with him. But one interesting story uh, talking about the stadium, uh, how Eric was saying how we had a lot of um, big names come together. Uh, He was described as the glue um, for one story about how Hugh McCall, John Belk, um, Jerry himself, and a few others had actually had lunch at the top of one of the Duke Energy buildings on a gravel type of roof, and they were trying to pick out where the stadium was going to go, and at that point, a lot of uh, stadiums were going to the suburbs of cities, and he said, no, we're going to put it right down there and pointed down where Bank of America Stadium was built, and we're going to get the city and the county to work with us to make it happen, Uh, and through tough negotiations, it's here. Um, so just a, a really uh, interesting story that maybe not a lot of people know about. And former Bank of America chair uh, Hugh McCall told the Business Journal yesterday that the death of Jerry Richardson marks an end of an era. Eric? Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely it does. He, he uh, dominated uh, much of Charlotte in general, but certainly sports for 25 years, starting in the 90s and up through 2018 when he sold the team. And Mike, uh, as, as a fellow old-timer, uh, you'll note that Bruton Smith uh, passed away last year who started the Speedway. So we really are seeing that first generation of professional sports uh, executives uh, starting to pass away. Well, uh, God rest his soul, and thank you for your contributions, Mr. Richardson, because they, they have been significant both on the field and off because we didn't even talk about his f- philanthropic efforts. Uh, when we come back, the Alex Murdoch trial reaches a verdict, guilty on all counts. The sentencing coming down moments from now. We'll cover that when we come back. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte. Using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on listener-funded 90.7 WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins. It's the local news roundup. David Borax is here from WFAE News. Daniel Shemtov, investigative reporter for Axios Charlotte. Hunter Signs from Channel 9, WSOC-TV. And Eric Spanberg, managing editor of the Charlotte Business Journal. The verdict in the Alex Murdoch trial in South Carolina. The lawyer accused of murdering his wife and son in June of 2021 was handed down yesterday. Defendant will rise. Madam Clerk, you may publish the verdict. Docket number 2022 GS15-00592, the State versus Richard Alexander Murdoch, defendant. Indictment for murder, guilty verdict. Signed by the forelady. Guilty on all counts, in fact. The verdict came down within hours of closing arguments having concluded. Was that a surprise that it happened so quickly? I think less than three hours. 
Certainly, it was a surprise to me. I mean, I think when you have 12 people in a room, uh, it would be just natural. You know, it's, it's hard to get 12 people to agree on lunch, uh, much yeah. less uh, something this complicated uh, and, you know, with this much at stake. So as you say, Mike, under three hours, uh, I think a couple of things stand out. One is the testimony of Alec Murdoch. Uh, seem to leave a lasting impression and not a good one with jurors. And the other is the role of technology in this case. When you look at uh, the the video that was recovered from his dead son's phone that uh, included Alec Murdoch's voice uh, on that video, and he had said for months to investigators and everyone else that he was not at the, the kennels where those murders occurred. So those are just a couple of the initial reactions I had. And, of course, he's an experienced attorney, and there's some question about whether or not taking the stand in his own defense was his decision or that of his attorney. But there are others who say that once that tape or the phone video of of him being at the kennel, which was found recently on his uh, dead son's phone, that he had to take the stand to uh, to, uh, talk about change his story, essentially. And he took that stand and, and, and admitted to all these crimes uh, of, of fiduciary crimes was that a wise thing to do well I, you know i almost think they had no choice like you say mike uh, once that evidence had surfaced there needs to be some kind of explanation and what he and his lawyers decided upon or went with was yes he has lied over and over and over again but that's because he had an opioid addiction but he would not lie about harming his family because he loved them so much. And I yeah. think just hearing me say that, you can see how that gets complicated in a hurry for a jury or anyone else to hear that, yes, I've lied over here over and over again, but I'm telling you the truth about this. I think that was difficult to overcome. Hunter, did you want to chime in there? I was just going to mention, of course, you know, he took the stand and admitted to several financial crimes as well. So you have to believe that prosecutors for some of those dozens of crimes that he's facing were sitting there, you know, chalking it up, saying we have him admitting on a stand in a separate case. And it's not the last time that we're going to see him in a courtroom either. Right. Uh, In his closing arguments, prosecutor Creighton Waters leaned heavily on the defendant's lies, calling them easy and deliberate. This defendant, on the other hand, has fooled everyone, everyone, everyone who thought they were close to him, everyone who thought they knew he was who he was. He's fooled them all. And he fooled Maggie and Paul, too. and they paid for it with their lives. Don't let him fool you too. He spoke for more than two hours, and the next day after the judge dismissed a juror for breaking the rules by talking to people outside the court about the case, the defense made their closing plea to the jury. Defense attorney Jim Griffin focused on three points, how law enforcement allegedly botched the investigation, Murdoch's loving relationship with his family, and a flawed theory of motive as presented by the state. Prosecution wants you to view the evidence through the diabolical monster lens that they have tried to paint, but the law requires you to view it through the lens of innocence where none of these things, individually or taken together, prove conclusively to Alex's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. 
on behalf of Alex, on behalf of Buster, on behalf of Maggie, and on behalf of my friend Paul, I respectfully request that you do not compound a family tragedy with another. Thank you. One of the defense attorneys becoming almost emotional, as uh, Alex Murdoch had been several times during that trial. Which do you think uh, had the more impact on the jury, the closing arguments or the actual testimony? I think the testimony. I just think that uh, for anyone who watched that testimony and heard Alec Murdoch uh, try to explain the difference in why he lied about one thing but did not lie about the other, I, again, I think that's really hard to overcome. Of course, we, we don't know yet uh, from, from jurors, but perhaps at some point we will hear from them. And, Mike, it's also important to note that uh, one of Alec Murdoch's attorneys, Dick Harputlian, has said there will be an appeal. When asked by the judge yesterday afternoon when the two sides would be ready for sentencing, both the prosecution and the defense said they would be ready by 9.30 this morning, which is when court will reconvene. There were some national commentators shocked at the swiftness of this, but evidently this is common practice in state courts in South Carolina. And they were actually surprised within South Carolina that sentencing wasn't handed down last night. But of course, the defense asked for a mistrial. So the judge laid out an extensive explanation, but this was the bottom line. The evidence of guilt is overwhelming, and uh, I deny the motion. Murdoch faces 30 years to life if, conv if convicted. Of course, he was convicted. The sentencing will come down moments from now. When it happens, we will let you know. Years ago, Charlotte and some other cities in North and South Carolina had this problem with an activity called cruising, which drivers would essentially take over a street and conduct a private parade of sorts. It was a kind of see-and-be-seen event. Somehow we ended that, but recently something new and more dangerous has cropped up. Street takeovers. There were more than a dozen last month alone. What's a street takeover? A street takeover is where a number of vehicles line up and block a roadway for the purposes of competitive speeding, doing burnouts, or donuts. The latest happened, I think, at 3 a.m., around 2 or 3 a.m. on Sunday outside the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Hunter, how long has this been going on? This has been going on for months, Mike. I mean, and really not only in Uptown, but throughout the city. We've seen reports. We've seen videos sent to um, our news our newsroom showing these things happening. Um, police have grappled with this because, of course, they only happen for a few minutes once these um, intersections are blocked off and they're doing burnouts and donuts, and then they scatter once police come. And according to CMPD policy, they can't pursue these vehicles once they go off. Um, so the, it's hard for police to catch, but they uh, to catch these people, but they are um, doing this new initiative with this new unit to make this a priority. These occur mostly at night. I guess there have been a few in, in the daytime. Would that be accurate? That would be. Uh, and the area of town where this occurred this past weekend was the intersection of South Boulevard and East Brooklyn Village in Uptown at about 3 a.m., uh, an area of town that has become increasingly residential. And this is very troubling to people who live nearby. 
Uh, Channel 9 got some video of this, uh, and the sound of revving motors and screeching is really loud. Here's how some area residents described it to WSOC-TV. I walked out on my apartment on the fifth floor. It just smelled like burning rubber. You hear him revving, and then they let off the gas, and it just pop, 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 pop. It almost sounds like gunshots. They're getting really, really bold and brazen with it. And to be able to do that kind of stuff without any fear of the police in the middle of uptown Charlotte, something needs to be done. One resident affected by the takeovers is Charlotte City Councilman Ed Driggs. I hear it from my home. It's very loud, aside from being dangerous. But he is confident that CMPD is on it. The CMPD is very aware, is on it. Uh, We're trying to balance that priority with public safety, with uh, containing violent crime. And City Council's Marjorie Molina says she hears from frustrated residents on this issue all the time. It is something that we do have a concern about, and we will be working with um, CMPD to find a solution that's favorable. So... There were so many of these incidents over the weekend, it's difficult to determine which one we actually heard the audio from. There was one at 2 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning, another at 10.30 p.m. near that same area to which CMP says they res- CMPD says they responded within 15 minutes. But they can't give chase. Have they made any other arrangements to, I don't know, uh, have people, have officers in those areas where they know these occur? It sounds like it, Mike, and the reason I say that is because, to their credit, I mean, they, they've given out 54 citations. They've made five arrests of people who allegedly were involved in the, in these street takeovers, and they've also seized a dozen of the vehicles that were used, uh, that they say were used in them. So I think they're tackling it as best they can. Of course, we know that they are understaffed, and they have other calls that they are um, answering as well. Uh, so when they get the, this type of call. They're getting there as soon as they can. Um, But there is some progress. uh, And I think there will continue to be, especially with this new unit. And CMPD uh, Major David Johnson says stopping these takeovers has become a priority of the department. In the past month, CMPD has ramped up its targeted enforcement of this activity. Officers have written 54 citations in relation to this type of activity. We've made five arrests, and we have towed, seized, or taken into custody as evidence 12 uh, separate vehicles. Now, these 12 vehicles represent a major jump in enforcement, uh, with the majority of these coming in just the past few weeks as we've uh, seen this activity uh, escalate. So they've issued citations and seized vehicles, and some have been charged with reckless driving. But State Representative Carolyn Logan told Channel 9 she is working on a bill to increase those penalties. What is she suggesting? So she wants she, former state trooper herself, um, who has probably dealt with things like this. She is wanting to see stiffer penalties, uh, whether it be, you know, you're facing longer jail time or felony type of charge. Um, she does say that there is support um, in both government uh, houses there in Raleigh. And she's hoping that if they can just get something drafted and get it to committee, let's see where it goes. But it is a problem that is popping up not only here, it's happening in Raleigh and it's happening in some of of our other our other towns as well and you might think because i thought why don't they just put cameras at those intersections and capture the driver the license plate numbers and evidently they can't necessarily do that because not only are the drivers not always driving their own cars 
but the plates have been altered in some way, so they can't. So what's the punishment if they find the person driving the car with altered plates? What's the punishment for that? I'm sure there is a misdemeanor there. Um, I don't know off the top of my head, Mike, but I'm sure there, I mean, it's against the law to not have your plates on your car. So if you're tampering with them, if they're not, um, if you can't see them, technically it's against the law. And although some areas in Charlotte report experiencing these takeovers almost every day, it's not just happening here. It's a national phenomenon and it's connected to something that is plaguing many aspects of modern society. And it's really a, it's a social media driven kind of phenomenon. So these folks are filming themselves, posting them to social media, getting the clicks and the likes. And that's one of the reasons we're seeing such an increase. Wow. CMPD Major David Johnson. Uh, this has not been confined to Uptown. This is happening in other areas of town too. Where, Hunter? We've seen it down in South Charlotte. We've seen it down in the Valentine area. So it's going out into the suburbs um, of, of our communities. We've seen it up in University City area. Um, so it's a difficult thing to tackle. Um, but I think the big thing here is we've seen the problems that Atlanta has had with them, and we don't want it to where it's happening every single Friday, Saturday night. Hunter Signs from WSOC-TV. He has to go on assignment now, so I have to let you go, but I'm going to trade you out for another TV reporter from the station across the street. That and $10. Uh, WBTV's, thank you, Hunter, appreciate it. Uh, WBTV's uh, Nick Oxner is going to join us. Now, CMS has an increasingly troubled history in dealing with sexual allegations, uh, sexual assault allegations, one that WBTV's chief investigative reporter Nick Oxner has been following carefully for more than a year, uh, the latest of which is, involves a five-year-old girl who alleges she was sexually assaulted on a school bus. Nick, what was the school system's response to the initial allegation? Well, the mother tells me, and that's why she called me initially, uh, that their response was to do nothing. Um, and it, it's even worse than that, Mike. They actually told the mother that they would take a series of steps to make sure the girl felt comfortable on the school bus, giving her a bus buddy, sitting her near the bus driver. And instead, that girl, the next time she got on the bus, was actually sat right next to one of the boys she reported assaulting her. You sat down recently with interim CMS Superintendent Crystal Hill to talk about this, and one of her first responses to you was a familiar one. I can't comment on confidential student matters. I'll tell you that I care deeply for every student um, and every staff member that's, that's here. But we're sitting here today because there's a mother of a five-year-old girl who reported being sexually assaulted who said the school district did nothing for her and her child after her child reported being sexually assaulted on a school bus. So what good do your words mean if there's a mother and a five-year-old who feel that way? Well, what I will say is that any um, reports of misconduct, especially if it's sexual misconduct under Title IX, there are certain processes that we have to follow. And to the general public, those processes don't always land well. So she mentioned Title IX. These incidents appear to put CMS uh, squarely in the crosshair of uh, Title IX violations, which Charlotte NAACP Education Chair Annette Albright says clearly states you do what you need to do to make sure these students aren't coming into contact with each other. And as you mentioned, Nick, the very next day, the mother alleges the child was forced to sit next to one of the alleged perpetrators. Who's responsible for that? Well, school administrators are responsible for making sure. And again, like even... Yes, but they're not on the bus. 
you got to tell, I guess, ultimately the bus driver. Did they tell the bus driver? And Mike, it's my understanding, actually, had to sit next to him multiple days in a row until someone realized what was going on and stopped it. Uh, you got to tell people. And the bottom line is, when you have situations like this, serious situations, you have to do whatever it takes to make sure you're providing accommodations for students so that they feel safe and comfortable at school and on the bus. In response, the district issued a statement saying that they cannot provide support that is outside of our control or is unduly burdensome. I have 30 seconds. What does that mean? I don't know, and I'm even more confused now because in our sit-down, Dr. Hill went to great lengths to distance herself from saying that word. And, uh, yeah. And we're going to hear part of that exchange between you and Dr. Hill because it is... uh, I'm not sure what it is. I'll let the listeners decide what it is when they hear it, and we'll do that when we come back. That and the sentencing, uh, or the, yes, the sentencing of uh, Alec Murdoch when we come back. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, incorporating Mazda's customer-centric vehicle design by making the customer the center of business to create a better car buying experience. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. It's the local news roundup on WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins. Eric Spamberg is here from the Business Journal. uh, Daniel Shemtov from Axios Charlotte. David Borax from WFAE. And right now we're talking to Nick Oxner, chief investigative reporter at WBTV, because uh, one of the stories he's been covering for several years now, and that is the uh, ongoing saga of sexual sexual assault allegations at CMS is back in the news. And I mentioned this statement uh, that uh, the, the district issued, CMS issued, saying they cannot provide support that is outside their control or is unduly burdensome. You say, uh, Nick, that you tried for a week to get answers about that statement, and you say Superintendent Hill and her staff repeatedly ignored your requests for an interview, but you approached her on her way into a meeting. And during that encounter, she said the system had taken every step to protect all students. But the next day, she said this. I would never, ever, ever authorized communication that we would say anything is unduly burdensome. When a parent says that something has happened to their child, there's nothing that's unduly burdensome. It's our job to make sure that our students are safe. So I will say to you again, but that's Mr. Oxner, that I will not comment on individual student matters. And if you ask me one more time, then I'm sorry, but our interview will have to be over. Oh, that's coming because you next asked her why she was taking a different stance from the statement that the CMS board or the CMS system initially issued. We're going to hear a rather lengthy segment of your report on Channel 3 so that we can be fair to both sides. So here it is. Yesterday, when we spoke on camera, you said you stood by that statement that the district issued. Why are you changing your story? Because I didn't realize that what was issued, that specific statement, there was two or three lines that were not accurate. I'm not standing by that statement because it's legalese. But that's not what Hill said when I talked with her Monday. She actually said claims made by the five-year-old's mother that school administrators did nothing to help her daughter were inaccurate. We still have parents who say the school's doing nothing. Well, it's not accurate. Would you 
say that to the mother of this five-year-old girl? That's what I would say. What I said yesterday on camera, I said that is inaccurate, meaning the statement, and I appreciate your smile, the statement was inaccurate because it was not the statement that I had authorized. But you also said the claims by the mother in this case were inaccurate because I asked you specifically to clarify. That's not what I said. Ma'am, it's on camera. And then, so as I pressed Hill to explain why she said one thing on Monday and another thing in our sit-down Tuesday, this happened. Well, I just want to know, did the school district issue a pre-investigative supportive measures letter in this case? I will not comment on individual student matters. I think did, we're done. Did the school district issue a notice of investigation in this case? Thank you. I appreciate it. Why aren't time. you willing to answer questions? I'm about willing to this. answer your questions, but you don't. You don't. Um, you, you don't. You, you, you know. You've asked the same question 50 times. I'm not even sure what my question is here yet, uh, uh, Nick. But how? How? Ordinary or unordinary is that kind of a response. To get up and walk out of an interview? Yeah. I. It happens from time to time, but it happens from people who don't want to answer questions. Let's be clear here, Mike. That interview happened Tuesday because Dr. Hill's staff reached out to me to schedule a time that day to answer questions on camera in a sit-down interview. I woke up to early morning calls and emails and texts for her to do an interview. And you heard what happened when she sat down. She wouldn't answer. We're talking about a five-year-old child who reported being sexually assaulted on a school bus and who was sat right next to the boy that she said assaulted her. And she came to an interview about that topic, prepared to say nothing about how the district handled that topic. And ultimately, you just heard what happened when I tried to ask her questions about that topic. So you may have partially answered my next qu my last question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because there are people out there who hate the media and who think that anybody who asks these questions is uh, obviously trying to skew the story to fit their own political purposes. But do you think that you were pressing too hard, or is this another example of what some say is the increasing opaqueness of area government bodies at all levels? I'm asking questions that parents of students in Charlotte-Mecklenburg schools have. And if you're the interim superintendent, there's speculation she wants to be the permanent superintendent. If you're the head of one of the largest school districts in the country and you can't answer questions about why a five-year-old girl who reported being sexually assaulted was seated right back next to the boy that she said assaulted her, that's a problem. Those aren't tough questions. That's not me being aggressive. And if you think that the media is just mean and playing gotcha, if asking gotcha questions involves asking the head of a school district why they can't take steps to protect five-year-old girls who've been assaulted, reported being assaulted on a school bus, sorry, I guess we disagree on that. But my job is to ask questions instead of the public, and that's what I did. Nick Oxner from WBTV, thank you for being with us this morning. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. Uh, the city of Charlotte's new arts and culture officer has finished her first assessment of the local arts community. They spoke to more than 3,000 residents and creative businesses and funders and arts and culture leaders and influencers. They focused on eight emerging insights. What are they? Mm -hmm. 
Well, I don't think there are many surprises in this uh, for anyone who follows the arts. There were things like lack of affordable space. Uh, they were calling for more attention and backing of local artists, not just uh, the, the brand name national artists. And there was uh, a lot of discussion about equity and, and inclusion, uh, not only for the artists and the types of art presented, but in access uh, to seeing that art as patrons. Uh, the other uh, aspect that stood out, uh, increasing arts education, not just for students, but sort of lifelong learning. Those were some of the highlights, Mike, and what they were, what they are going to do now, uh, the steering group uh, that is, uh, I guess, ultimately under the auspices of the city council is then go form a 10-year strategy and funding plan because all of this has been a process to figure out a way to stabilize arts funding. Danielle, did you want to comment? Yeah, I mean, if you'll remember, you know, there was the failed arts referendum back in 2019. Um, and one of the biggest issues is funding and finding a permanent funding uh, long term for the arts sector. I believe the you know, report referenced it being at a, at a crisis point. Uh, but one of the biggest kind of contentions is the role of the Arts and Science Council. Um, and the council basically you know, the plan that they have would put the decisions around funding for the arts. They would, they have mentioned, you know, that they are quite dramatically increasing funding for the arts, but they would be putting it in the hands of, you know, the city mm -hmm. instead of directing it to the ASC, which of course um, generated controversy among some artists on Monday night who rely on funding from the ASC and, and of course from the ASC itself. We've been talking, not to switch gears, but we're going to, we've been talking a lot about cats leading up to a possible strike that was averted, and, and that was, and we talked about the problems they experienced most of last year at cats, and, and in those conversations, we've been talking about a company called RATP-DEV, R-A-T-P-DEV. They run the buses, they hire the drivers, they negotiate the, uh, the, hire the drivers, they negotiate the contracts, but they're relatively mysterious. Axios Charlotte took a closer look at them, uh, given that their contract will be up next year. What did you find? Yeah, so we basically found that, you know, this all comes from because the buses used to be privately run and at the time uh, the workers were unionized already when the city took it over, but North Carolina law says that uh, governments, local governments can't negotiate with unions, so they had to have an outside contractor basically manage, uh, you know, the bus system and labor negotiations. And that's what we saw with these union negotiations. And in fact, after they came out with the contract, which of course, you know, almost led to a strike, but, uh, but in the end, they found a deal. Um, you know, they said, the cats said that we can't uh, provide a copy of the contract, you know, like RATP dev is one who would have that. But meanwhile, reporters haven't been able to get in touch. Their phone goes to voicemail. Uh, you know, reporters haven't been able to get in touch with this company at all. Yeah, that's one of the things that shocked me, that one of your reporters at Axio Charlotte tried to call several times and they're in another city. She got voicemail. They never returned her calls. And they never appeared, to the best of our knowledge, they have never appeared before Charlotte City Council. Is that accurate? Yes. And, that's and so will that, that be in the next contract that whoever gets it, they will be appearing before City Council? That's something that some people on council want to push for. I think we're going to see, you know, we may also see another company come in. I mean, you know, we'll see, uh, of course, RITB Dev could apply again, um, but I think there's going to be more scrutiny than there ever has been. 
Well, the Charlotte-Mecklenburg School Board voted this week to ask the Mecklenburg County Commission to put a $3 billion bond referendum on this November's ballot. It passed 8-1 to one with members acknowledging it's a big number, a more than triple what voters approved six years ago, and it would be a record amount of money for a bond referendum. CMS board member Lisa Klein, who represents South Charlotte and Pineville, was among the members who believe that the system needs a big infusion of investment money to pay for repairs, renovations, and replacements of aging school buildings. That's a lot of money in tough times. But if we don't provide for our children, things will get tougher. And Thelma Byers-Bailey, who represents West Charlotte, says the buildings in which children are educated send a message to those kids. The school that these students come to on a daily basis speaks volumes to whether or not we really care about them. So it's a big ask. They meet with the county commission on Saturday. The county commission said on this program, George Dunlop said on this program, they're going to make this decision. It's their decision to make. What's it likely to be? Sounds you like, know, the, oh, go ahead, David. I was just going to say the history of this is that, you know, the purse strings in Mecklenburg County are controlled by the county commission. They get to decide how much is in the broader county budget and what the tax rate is. Uh, they have already said they're not, they don't have an appetite for $3 billion. So I would expect uh, that it would be closer to what they're saying they would do, which is two and a half billion dollars. And, you know, CMS has already whittled this project list down from about 40 to 30. Uh, so I would expect we'll see that shrink a little bit more. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, one member of the school board voted no uh, the other night on this. Uh, it was Jennifer DeLahara, and she voted no because she said it's not enough money. And so she's pushing hard for that. She also says that when, when this does come up for a vote uh, of voters, uh, that she will be the biggest cheerleader for it. And remember, even if it's 2.5, Mike, the uh, the largest school bond ever passed in this state is $1.7 billion last year in Guilford County. So it would still be significantly larger than anything that's been passed. We also got an update this week on the progress of the Mayor's Racial Equity Initiative's $250 million public-private fundraising campaign. We heard from co-chair Malcolm Coley, who, Eric, you say got an earful from attendees. About what? Uh, there was a, a lot of um, criticism of how information is being shared and how uh, the recommendations on the money being spent are gathered. And uh, you had a lot of community and neighborhood activists in the room uh, as Malcolm Coley was speaking. They were saying, we haven't heard anything about it. We haven't been asked. Why are we, you know, why are people not reaching out to us? And he, he explained the, the various groups that are running the four major initiatives and uh, promised to do better and said that an annual report is coming later this year. But uh, there was a lot of tension, Mike, and then they got into a project that did not uh, end up getting built near Johnson C. Smith. And it was a long, I, I guess, spirited discussion would be the best way to put it. A Charlotte woman by the name of uh, Shanquella Robinson was killed in late October while vacationing in Mexico. An arrest warrant was issued for a friend of hers, but now an attorney representing her family says the need, they need high-level diplomatic intervention from the U.S. government in order to move the case forward. Why? And this is uh, from some of Hunter Sines' uh, reporting that he handed off to me because he had to leave early, but... Uh, <laughs> They're being told that it's very difficult to get information, not just because of the language barrier, but that uh, the, the Mexican authorities are not forthcoming uh, and that it's going to take some type of formal diplomatic intervention to get the information that they need. 
We are still waiting the sentencing. It's underway right now in that courtroom in Colleton County in South Carolina of Alex Murdoch, who was uh, convicted last night on all counts, two counts of murdering his wife and son, among other counts. Uh, as soon as we have that, we'll bring it to you on WFAE. Meanwhile, we close with another death of note. We spoke earlier about Jerry Richardson. Yesterday, it was announced that Cozy Watkins had died. Danielle, remind us quickly of who she is. Yeah, Cozy was the 12th Congressional District Chair of the state party, but, you know, really just well known as a Democratic Party activist in Charlotte. Uh, she really, uh, you know, gained national attention because during the 2020 Democratic National Convention, they had this virtual um, delegate count, and she uh, delivered North Carolina's delegates uh, standing in front of a Hidden Valley uh, sign and, you know, talking about the importance of Black women uh, to the Democratic Party and, and really gained notoriety for that. And Representative Alma Adams announced her passing and praised her as a volunteer, a Democratic Party chair, convention delegate, and activist who bettered the lives of her neighbors and worked for equity and justice. But she gained national attention for a minute during uh, the virtual Democratic convention uh, during the pandemic. She stood in front of the Hidden Valley neighborhood sign to nominate Joe Biden for president, and that announcement went viral. I've been doing this for a long time, so let me just be plain. Black people, especially black women, are the backbone of this party, and if we don't show up, Democrats don't get elected. I'm putting on my mask, and we're going to every corner in North Carolina to help organize, because we need to make sure everyone shows up for Joe Biden. He will show up for us. North Carolina cast 39 votes for Bernie Sanders, and 83 votes for the next president of the United States, Joe Biden. Cozy Watkins died yesterday at the age of 72, still awaiting sentencing uh, uh, in the Murdoch trial. Murdoch is wearing not his regular garb, but jail garb at the moment. No victims wanted to make statements. And he says that he is innocent, that he would never, he just spoke to the judge. Uh, he says that he's innocent, he would never have killed his wife and son. Stay with us. We'll have updates throughout the day on that. David Borax from WFAE News, Daniel Shemtob from Axios Charlotte, Eric Spanberg from the Charlotte Business Journal, Hunter Signs from WSOC-TV, and Nick Oxner from WBTV. Thank you all for the hour. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com.